Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always a great privilege to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Today I'd like to talk about Yom Yerushalayim, uh, the anniversary of the reunification of the city of Jerusalem. Um, the date for that is actually this Friday. Um, the Hebrew date is the 28th of year. So today is the 26th of year. Friday is the 28th of year. And that is the momentous day when the Israeli soldiers were able to liberate Jerusalem, Jerusalem um, 55 years ago. And uh, it is such a great privilege to live in a time when Jerusalem is under Jewish control. We all have the privilege, the opportunity to go to Eretz Israel, to go to visit Jerusalem, to go to the Kota Maravi, the old city and the Western Wall, um, which is really a great gift from Hashem and a great, uh, a great privilege that we have in our times. But I think it's very important to understand the spiritual significance, the historical background, and the military aspect of this momentous day. Um, and uh, I think, you know, in our world today, there are many revisionist historians that distort what happened 55 years ago and um, skewer our understanding of Jerusalem and of the Jewish people's claim to the land of Israel and of the Jewish people's right to be in the land of Israel. So that's why I think it's important to talk about these things and to discuss the history and to have a clear understanding um, in this regard. So let's start out with the spiritual aspect of Jerusalem. The Jewish people from the beginning have had a very strong connection to the land of Israel and to Jerusalem. So let's start way back in the beginning. Um, Moses leaves Egypt and leads the Jewish people into freedom in the year 1313 before the Common Era, which is the year 2448 according to the Jewish calendar, 2448 since creation. And 40 years later, Joshua Yoshua enters into the land. That's the year 1273 before the Common Era. And um, it takes about 400 years for the kings to emerge, for David HaMelech, King David, to um, arrive in Jerusalem and declare Jerusalem his capital. And King David bought the um, area from Oronan Hayavusi. He bought the land. And he built his palace and he declared Jerusalem his capital. He called it Yerushalayim because that comes from um, two words combining together. The Torah tells us that Abraham met Malchit Tzedek, Melech Shalem. Uh, Malchit Tzedek, the king of Shalem. And the Torah tells us that when Abraham took Isaac onto the Mizbech, onto the altar um, for the Akeda. Um, it says, hahu bahar Hashem On that day, on the mountain of Hashem, where Hashem is seen, the mountain where Hashem is seen. So if you take those two words, Yerae and Shalem, you get Yerushalem. That's how it's actually written. 
in the Torah, it's written in Tanakh many, many times, 660 times, the word Yerushalayim is, it's written Yerushalayim, but we are pronounced Yerushalayim. So that's where it begins, is, is Abraham meets Malki Tzedek, and he uh, goes up onto this mountain to sacrifice Isaac, and God tells him not to sacrifice his son, but rather to take the ram, and he says on that mountain God is seen, so Yera Shalem, Yerushalayim, that's where the name comes from, and um, David HaMelech then, in the about 500 years later, is the one who um, builds the, his capital over there in exactly the same place um, in the year 877 before the Common Era. David's son Shlomo, King Solomon, builds the first temple in that place in the year 833 before the Common Era. So here we're talking about almost a thousand years before um, before Yoshka, we're talking about more than 1500 years before the emergence of Islam, before the, the creation of Islam. So the Jewish people were there a long time ago. We were there over 3000 years ago and we were in the center of our, um, of our existence, which was Israel and Yerushalayim. Um, the second, the first temple is destroyed in the year 423 before the common era. It's destroyed by the Babylonians. The Persians then take over the Babylonian Empire. We have the story of Purim in 355 before the Common Era. The second temple is then built 70 years later, 349 before the Common Era is when the second temple is built. And it stands for 420 years. And we have the Hanukkah story in 139 before the Common Era. Second temple is then destroyed by the Romans in 70 of the Common Era. So that's when the second temple is destroyed, and that's the great exile of the Jewish people. We still remain in that exile from that point on. So the center of Jewish life was no longer in the land of Israel. It began to dissipate. Most went to Babel, to Babylonia. For a century they were in Babylonia, and then they went to different places um, all over the globe. As we know, we still remain in that exile, and... Uh, but there were always were Jews in Israel. There were always Jews in Yerushalayim. It always was the place where we daven three times a day. We pray to God that um, the great city of Yerushalayim should be rebuilt. And our connection to both physically Jews living in the land and spiritually our aspirations to return to the land have always been strong and, and have never waned. Um, we then have we had the Bar Kokhba Revolt against the Romans, the year 130 of the Common Era. Um, and then, you know, it went downhill from there. And uh, until, um, well, it is worthwhile mentioning, so the, the establishment of Islam is in the 7th century, um, from 1099 to 1291 with the Crusades. So the Muslims and the Christians fought over domination of the Middle East and of, of the land of Israel. The Ottoman Empire takes control in the year 1517 to 1917. So remember, there's no Palestinian state. There's no Palestinian country in all of these times. Israel's always conquered and ruled by a far-off empire. Um, the Ottoman Empire remains in control of the Middle East and the land of Israel um, until the end of World War One, which is 1918. Um, and then um, already the the... Uh, emergence of the Zionist movement is from 1897 with Theodor Herzl and with the Dreyfus trial in France and uh, 
because of of uh, added anti-Semitism in in Europe. So many Jews began already from 1882 to to try and and, and uh, return to the land on mass. 1897 is the beginning of the Zionist movement. We have the Balfour Declaration in 1917, where the British government promises the Jewish people that they will have an independent state in the land of Israel. And then the many events that lead up to the establishment of the state of Israel. A few weeks ago, we spoke about those many events and the incredible circumstances that resulted in the United Nations voting in favor of partition and dividing up the land between um, the the uh, Jewish side of the land is the Jewish section. There would be the Arab section. The Jews accepted the partition plan. The Arabs rejected the partition plan and immediately declared war on the Jews. We have the incredible war of independence where a bunch of Jewish refugees and survivors of Europe take on um, five well-armed Arab armies and miraculously and incredibly defeat them. And uh, so the state of Israel is born. Now, after the, 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 the War of Independence, we see that um, the, um, the, there was an armistice agreement between um, the different parties. Part of the armistice agreement is that the Jewish people should have um, a right to um, visit the holy places. So that was the, the agreement with Jordan. They'd be able to visit the Western Wall. They'll be able to visit Rachel's tomb. Um, but none of those agreements were were honored, and the Jews weren't allowed to go to those places. Um, the high walls were built. So Jerusalem was under the – was split. And uh, the holy sites of Jerusalem were under Jordanian rule, Jordanian control. The border was where Highway 1 is now, Mandelberg Gate. Um and uh, there were uh, the, the Jews had to build high walls because there were Jordanian snipers, and there were many terrorist attacks at that time. The Fedayin, as it was known, um, caused that. And the Arabs kept the refugees. So remember, in the War of Independence, the Arabs told their people to flee, to go, to get away from the the area, so their armies could come in, and then they would return. But after the war, they refused to resettle them, and refused to allow them to be absorbed into. Um, larger Arab society either and really kept them hostage to the struggle which is the struggle against the Jews and the attempt to destroy the land of Israel. Please stay with us we'll be back in a moment This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM So we're discussing the um, the post-war of independence um, landscape in the Middle East. And after Israel prevailed against all odds in the war of independence, so as we had mentioned last time when we discussed this in detail, the Russians wanted to get into the Middle East. And when they saw that they couldn't do so through Israel, so then they looked for other ways to do so. Um, Stalin was determined before his death in 1953 to, to destroy the Jewish population in Russia. And even after Stalin's death, the attitude to the Jews didn't change, although the level of intensity and persecution did come down a little bit. So Russia um, realized that the only way to get into the Middle East would be through the Arab countries. And they quickly understood that the best way to do so 
was through Gamal Abdul Nasser, who was a captain in the Egyptian army in the independence war. And we returned from the war and the terrible defeat of the Egyptian army. He was the key, uh, the, uh, the center of a revolution which deposed King Farouk and uh, Nasser then became president and the dictator of Egypt. Nasser had, Nasser had great ambitions and uh, many different ideas how to achieve his plans. He was a megalomaniac, which uh, helps to achieve some of these aspirations. He, he came up with this grand idea of pan-Arabism. So all the Arabs wouldn't be separate nations, but rather they would come together in one single nation. So you wouldn't have Egypt and Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Um, they would unite under him in one large Arab country. So even though the Egyptians themselves are not Arabs, um, this was his plan. And in order to unite all the Arab countries, they needed a common goal. So naturally that common goal would be the great enemy of Israel. And uh, he positioned himself, NASA, between the United States and Russia. He actually wanted to build a big dam called the Aswan Dam, which is uh, a massive dam at the beginning of the Nile. And uh, it would prevent the floods of the Nile Basin and provide hydroelectric power for Egypt, which be, it, it would be one of the greatest engineering achievements of the century. And it is the largest dam in the world to this day. So the, originally the United States were behind him and were willing to pay for the building of the dam. President Eisenhower and the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, were on side. But they realized um, that NASA was playing both sides. That he was playing the United States up against the Russians and vice versa. And therefore they felt he was exploiting the Americans and they backed out of the plan to build the dam. And the Russians very quickly entered into that space. They saw the opportunity and they agreed to build the dam. They sent 30,000 Russian engineers and technicians in order to do so. And they, um, and they didn't wish, um, they, they, they were very much, uh, once, you know, as you say, once the bear's in the house, it's very difficult to get the bear out of this, the house. And uh, so the, band was, the, the dam was built by the, the Russian, um, by the Russian technicians. And uh, the ecologists actually uh, questioned today whether it was a good thing because as a result of building this massive dam, it became a breeding ground of millions of mosquitoes and the many uh, diseases which were a mosquito born came into Egypt and there were other ecologic, ecologic complications. But, um, the, uh, the, I think NASA didn't give a damn. So the Russians not only built the dam, but they began to arm the Egyptians and they armed them, um, extensively. And, uh, NASA with the Russians behind him and the Russian arms behind him, was always ambitious and pushing the envelope. And he resented the fact that the Suez Canal was under British control. And he decided one day he negotiated with, the, with Britain and the negotiations fell through. And he decided to nationalize the Suez Canal unilaterally. And he did so on the 26th of July, 1956. Uh, uh, 
the Soviet Union um, supported him, and uh, they, they claimed that it was all part of his right for self-determination, and uh, he had a right to get rid of the imperialists, but obviously Britain were not happy at all. And France at that time was in the facing the Algerian Revolution, and uh, they decided together with Britain to uh, to take back the Suez Canal. And the Israelis also were very concerned about NASA. Ben Gurion rightly saw NASA as a greater danger to the existence of Israel, and so they joined in with France and Britain. And the plan was to invade the Sinai. For, for Israel to invade the Sinai and to reach the Suez Canal um, in order to stop. There were many terrorist attacks coming in through the Sinai that were encouraged and supported by NASA. So Israel then would prevent that from being the case. France and England would then invade Egypt at the Suez Canal and they would topple NASA and they would create a new power play in the Middle East. Um, it was called Operation Kadesh. There was the Suez Campaign. 29th of October 1956, and uh, many of the famous Israeli generals, Moshe Dayan, Arik Sharon, Rafi Eitan, Moti Gur, they all um, were uh, showed their great military prowess and their leadership and were uh, very successful in Operation Kadesh. And the Israelis reached the Suez Canal in six days. They, they broke through all. There were German defensive lines. There were many German generals after World War II went to Egypt and they built their defenses and Britain and France landed their paratroopers and they sent warships to the Suez Canal um, and uh, and they were successful. They, however, they made a major error, major, major error, and that is they didn't inform the United States and President Eisenhower of their plans. President Eisenhower had quite a temper, and he took it personally and was very unhappy um, as to what had happened and not being included in it. And obviously the Russians were very upset with it too. The Russians were dealing with the Hungarian Revolution at the time, which was uh, started in October 1956, um, which was a spontaneous nationwide, nationwide revolt against the Russian government and uh, the Soviets. They... They uh, rolled their tanks into Budapest. 30,000 Hungarians were, uh, civilians were killed in the uprising. Um, and, uh, the, the, they, they ruthlessly crushed this uprising in order to, um, in order to, um, ensure that their dominance of Eastern Europe would remain. And Khrushchev, who was the Russian, um, the, the leader of Russia said to the Israelis that unless they withdrew from the Sinai, the Russians would fire their missiles on Israel, and it even implied nuclear missiles. So, um, although it was a great military success, it was uh, diplomatically was a great failure. And uh, the the one thing that they did get out of it, Israel, so they they withdrew their forces from the Sinai, and the Suez Canal was given back to the Egyptians to NASA. And however, in the agreements that were made through the United Nations. Um, a peacekeeping force was sent to the Sinai of 3,000 soldiers. And Israel, one of the things that NASA did is he blocked the um, Gulf of Aqaba and the use of the Suez Canal to Israeli ships. So part of the agreement was that he would – not that he would now recognize Israel, 
and have and make peace with Israel, but just that Israeli ships would have a right to go through the Suez Canal and would be able to not be blocked at Sharm al Sheikh, but would be able to enter into um, into the Gulf of Aqaba. So, um, although although um, he never did allow Israeli ships to to go through the Suez Canal, ships that were they said they were bound for other places and ended up in Haifa Harbor, he he turned a blind eye and did allow for that to be. But we see that uh, NASA was bolstered by this diplomatic victory, and he saw himself as a great and statesman of the time, and uh, therefore was encouraged by these events. So he had all sorts of ideas and schemes, as we mentioned. He wanted to, he united with Syria, and uh, Syria was a very unstable country. It had 28 governments in 20 years, as one military coup after the next. Um, but United, uh, NASA united with the Ba'ath Party, who was in government, and he created this United Arab Republic. And he said this, this United Arab Republic was, was a split in half because of the presence of Israel, because Israel was in between them. Israel was preventing um, the greatness of this uh, new Arab Republic. King Hussein of Jordan uh, was not a fan of Nasser. He was very suspicious of him. The Saudis also were suspicious of him, and they understood that he was after their oil. Um, and so it wasn't so simple that he emerged at this, as this great um, Arab leader. Israel understands and sees the great threat coming from Nasser and from his ambitions. Um, the chief of staff of the Israeli army at the time was Yitzhak Rabin, and he very correctly said that if there was a war, Israel wouldn't be able to fight for longer than a week. The Israeli economy um, and the army wouldn't be able to manage for more than that. And therefore, they realized that in order to succeed in this very dangerous situation, they would have to um, plan preemptive strikes. Otherwise, um, they would not be able to stand up to this force. The Prime Minister of Israel at the time was Levi Eshkol. He was the third Prime Minister of Israel. Um, the first one was David Ben-Gurion. second one was Moshe Sharet. And he was the third Prime Minister from 1960 to 1969. He was a very underrated leader. Um, he was highly criticized at the time, but subsequently historians um, write good things about him and say that he was a strong leader, he was a person of strength, um, and... Uh, he, however, to his detriment, he wasn't a good public speaker and he was not very impressive in appearance. So he didn't come across as a good leader. Um, the, uh, so the situation is heating up and NASA is wanting to prove himself. And um, there's a bit of a stalemate because NASA, the, the other Arab leaders, they, you know, they, they weren't fond of him. And they actually said very critical things about him, things that we can't repeat on public radio, um, very harsh and crude criticisms. Um, and NASA is now losing credibility because everybody is saying, you know, you claim to be this great powerful leader, but you really haven't done anything. Your bark is much, much bigger than your bite. Um, he was bankrupt. Egypt was bankrupt because they had to pay the Russians for all the arms that they were pouring in, and the Russians, as payment, took the entire cotton crop of Egypt in 1967, which uh, 
was the biggest export of of uh, of Egypt. The Syrians withdrew from this United Arab Republic. So Nasser is is his position is waning, and he then decides to throw the dice and to actually take the risk and to attack Israel. On, the, on May the 15th, 1967, which is the 19th anniversary of Yom Ha'atzmaut of Israel Independence Day, Nasser, looking for glory, he parades two divisions of the Egyptian army in Cairo, and he says, I'm sending them into Sinai. And he began to talk of war and, uh, and the elimination of Israel. Um, it wasn't territorial. Um, it wasn't a, you know, he said it's not a territorial threat or Israel's a threat to the Arab world. He dropped all of those pretenses and he spoke about the annihilation of the state of Israel. And he didn't mince his words. So I'll quote to you exactly what he said in Cairo radio. He says, this is our chance to deal Israel a mortal blow of annihilation. The Arab people is firmly resolved to wipe Israel off the map, will not accept any coexistence with Israel, Today the issue is not the establishment of peace between the Arabs and Israel. The war with Israel is in effect since 1948. So he didn't mince his words at all. And of course the Israelis became very concerned about these words that they were hearing, these bold public threats to the existence of the State of Israel. The head of the UN at the time was a, a person from Burma. His name was Uthant. And um, when he when NASA suddenly paraded these marched these divisions into the Sinai. So that was against the agreement in 1956. And as we mentioned, there were 3,000 UN soldiers that were in the Sinai. And he um, he uh, also, not only did he do that, but he blockaded the Straits of Aqaba and the Egyptian troops were right on the border with Israel once more. Um, Uthan said to him, you know, you must remove the troops, otherwise we're leaving and so Nasser said, said, okay, leave. And so they left. He didn't consult anybody, you think, and he, he withdrew the United Nations troops. And the Egyptians sent a formidable army into the Sinai, 120,000 men, 1,000 artillery pieces, 3,000 tanks. They had strong lines of fortifications that were now built by the Russians. And Nasser's very confident that they now can attack Israel and destroy Israel. They signed a treaty with Syria, even though Syria had backed out of the United Arab Republic. Um, the treaty placed the command of Syrian army under Egypt. And so now there's a two-front war against Israel in the south and in the north. And the Arabs incited one another and uh, they they lifted the – they raised the ante of, uh, of hatred towards Israel and of the threats to destroy Israel. So we see Israel is facing a very serious, perilous situation their very existence is, is under threat over here. The Israeli foreign minister was an individual by the name of Abba Iban. He was actually born in Cape Town. He grew up in the United Kingdom. He was known for his outstanding oratory and his, um, his ability to, to uh, speak very well. And he's now sent by Israel to try and get support from the powers, the world powers, the Western powers um, against this Aggression that they're facing in the Middle East. And so he goes to, um, he goes to France, he goes to the United States, he goes to England. If you stay with us, we'll discuss, continue to discuss it in a moment.
This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we're discussing the great pressure that Israel was under in 1947, the terrible aggression that came from NASA um, and his dominance of the Arab countries in the Middle East and his threats to Israel now sending his army uh, back on the Israel's southern border and having control of the um, Syrian troops as well. Uh, Abba Iban goes, the Israeli foreign minister, he goes to France, he sees De Gaulle, De Gaulle who was a very difficult person to deal with. Churchill said in World War II, one of the greatest challenges in the entire war was dealing with De Gaulle. Um, they all struggled with him, all of the allies. De Gaulle tells Abba Iban that Israel cannot strike first, that Israel cannot engage a preemptive strike. If they do, France will withhold all sales of arms to Israel. And that was a very serious set because Israel was the, the Americans wouldn't supply Israel, the British wouldn't supply Israel. Israel's air force was armed with French planes, the Mesters, the Mirages, the Fugas. And there was a deal that Shimon Peres had negotiated with the French. So, um, the Gaulle said, if you strike first, we're going to stop supplying with the arms, which was a very serious thing for Israel. So Ibn made no protest, and de Gaulle thought that he understood what he said, and he was in agreement. He went to London, meets with Harold Wilson, who's the British Labour Prime Minister. Wilson says, don't do anything. Um, I'm going to, me and my friend, um, Lyndon Johnson, the President of the United States, will sort this all out. We're going to make a plan. Don't worry about it. Goes to the United States. He meets with Johnson. Johnson, who is facing a terrible situation, is in the middle of the Vietnam War. He has no popular support. There's rioting on the streets and campuses in the United States, and there's high inflation. Johnson soon is to announce that he won't run for another term. He says to Abu Ibn, don't do anything. Please don't make me more trouble over here. I have enough to deal with now, um, and uh, you, you can't do anything. Johnson was very charming person, Ibn doesn't really understand the message, and he thinks that Johnson has been won over by him and thinks that they're going to help him. So he goes back to Israel, he reports to the cabinet and says that our friends, the British and the Americans are going to arrange an international flotilla that will go through the uh, Straits of Aqaba, that will go through Suez Canal, and they're going to sort it all out didn't take long for the Israelis to realize that that was not going to be the case, that they realized that Israel is alone, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? That Israel has to make that realization regularly. And the only way to prevent the annihilation would be to carry out a preemptive strike. The um, two other very important things happen at this time, one of them being that Levi Eshkol, the prime minister, makes a speech on Israeli radio, and he made the huge error of not having read the speech before he said it. They handed it to him as he walked into the studio, which really is a not a good idea. We, um, It's very important that one uh, works out what one's saying and has it clear before one is presented to the public. Even the best of speakers need to do preparation. And the speech was a complete disaster. He stammered and he stumbled and... Uh, he, he came over very weak and he said, we appeal to our 
neighbors, Egypt and Syria, to respect international borders. Instead of coming over strong and saying, if you mess with us, we're going to destroy you, he was very weak and meek, and it created a crisis in Israel. And he was, uh, since uh, since the beginning of Israel, since Ben-Gurion, the prime minister also was the minister of defense, and there were many cries to uh, that he shouldn't be minister of defense, somebody else should be minister of defense. Second thing that happened is the Israeli chief of staff, Yitzhak Rabin, had a nervous breakdown. The Israeli said that it was nicotine poisoning, and he was ill, but it was really, because he was a very heavy smoker, but it was actually he collapsed from all the pressure. And so Israel was in crisis, and uh, they had no head of the army. The prime minister seemed very weak, and the Israeli public demanded changes. So what Eshkol did is he immediately made a wall-to-wall coalition, and for the first time, Menachem Begin was welcomed into the government. Um, he was uh, the leader of the opposition, and he appointed Moshe Dayan as the Minister of Defense. Now, Dayan, he was a hero from the 56 war, um, although his private life was a shambles and he was involved in many different scandals, but he was seen as an excellent uh, military strategist, an excellent soldier. People respected him. The Arabs feared him, and he was appointed Minister of Defense. Now, in his own words, in his memoirs, he writes, Dayan, that there was nothing he could do. You know, at this late hour... All of the plans and all of the um, everything that uh, Israel wanted to do in the army was uh, was already set up in place, so he couldn't change that. But the only thing that it did do is that it improved morale, and morale in an army is very, very valuable. It's worth more than weapons, it's worth more than men, and the morale of the soldiers. The final straw is that King Hussein flies to Cairo. Um, from Amman, and he signs an agreement in which he agrees to place the Jordanian army under Egyptian control. So Israel now realizes that it has three fronts from which they are threatened, South Egypt, the North Syria, and the East Jordan. And the propaganda and the rhetoric is, is continues, and so Israel understands that um, they're in trouble, and they're under tremendous threat, and the, it looks like they could be destroyed, God forbid. And so uh, the Israeli forces were much weaker than the, the, uh, these three armies that they faced, much, much weaker. Um, the odds were certainly against, uh, against Israel. The Arabs were armed by the Russians. They were better armed. They had biggest uh, numbers, and they were actually overconfident. So if we look at the numbers... Um, the uh, total soldiers, if you include the reservists as well, Israel had six, 264,000, and the Arab armies of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, and Iraq as well, was 547,000. So they had double the amount of soldiers, the Arabs, um, with regards to tanks. Um, Israel had 800 tanks, and the Arabs had 2,500 tanks, so they had three times the amount of tanks. And with regards to planes... Um, Israel had 250 combat planes, they had 947, so it's more than triple planes. So it's double the amount of soldiers, triple the amount of tanks, and more than triple the amount of planes. And so Israel is very, very concerned, and they realize the only way that they could possibly overcome this overwhelming force would be with a preemptive strike. Um, it was something that the Israelis had been working on for a long time, because they knew that this was the situation they were in, the threat that they faced. 
And on June the 5th, 1967, Israel authorizes Operation Focus Mifza Moked, um, a plan that Israeli pilots had drooled for for years. Israel had excellent intelligence of the Egyptian intelligence of Egyptian air force bases, mainly from a spy by the name of Wolfgang Lotz, who was German-born. Um, he was an Israeli spy. He, he posed as a former SS officer. And Ali Al-Alfi, who was NASA's personal monsieur, these were the two main sources of information for Israel, but they had excellent intelligence. The Israeli planes, as part of this operation, had to fly very low, below radar, just above the sea, 100 feet from the sea, which is very close, to avoid the detections. Uh, Egypt had 82 radar sites, and uh, they were successful at catching the Egyptians by surprise. Please stay with us. We'll continue in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So we're discussing the incredible events of the Six-Day War, and Israel knew the only way they would be able to succeed against the overwhelming force of the Arab armies of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan would be with a preemptive, and uh, Saudi Arabia would be a preemptive strike. And they had excellent intelligence with regards to the Egyptian Air Force, and the Israelis realized that the they would expect a, a conventional warfare would dictate that a, a preemptive strike would happen at dawn because the the attacking forces would come from the east and the defending soldiers would have the sun in their eyes as their enemies attacked them. And so Israelis knew largely through listening to the um, ground-to-air communications of the Egyptian Air Force that most of the pilots would be on the ground um, after the dawn patrols at 7.45 in the morning. That's when the change of ship would come. And most of the pilots would be on the ground having breakfast. And that was exactly the time when they hit the Egyptians. And they did so with great accuracy and great success. They trained extensively for many, many years on this operation, on Mifta Moked, which means Operation Focus. Um, the, uh, the Israelis built um, dummy um, uh, runways and airports and planes and they trained for many many years the, the soldiers, the pilots knew um, each one knew what his target was and knew knew it very very well um, it required dozens of squadrons from different bases to rendezvous silently over 11 targets between 20 and 45 minutes flying time away it was extremely complex all but 12 of Israel's 250 jets were thrown into the attack leaving the country's skies virtually defenseless, which was a great risk that Israel had to take, but they realized that the success in the war would depend on this operation, and they were incredibly successful. Um, the um, the uh, It was a stunning success, and thank God, beyond all expectations, uh, by the end of the first wave, four airfields in the Sinai and two in Egypt had been entirely knocked out, and uh, in the second wave, the Israeli Air Force destroyed another 107 planes. 204 planes were destroyed in the first wave, 107 in the second wave. So by 10.30 in the morning, the Egyptian Air Force was destroyed. And by the end of June the 5th, um, the first day of the war, 400 Arab planes had been destroyed, 19 Israeli planes, 
the extensive battles that were fought in Sinai, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and in the Golan. But Israel defeated her enemies on all three fronts and was able to gain territory on all of those fronts. And of course, the jewel of Israel's crown was the old city of Jerusalem. And so on Friday, we celebrate 56 years since the reunification of Jerusalem. And thank God, uh, Jerusalem is a thriving city, the largest in Israel, with a tremendous amount of Torah learning and of industry and of many uh, uh, people living in the holy city. And uh, please God, it should continue to thrive. Hashem should protect the people of Israel. Hashem should protect the state of Israel. And we should uh, not take for granted the great gift that we have. We have a land of Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem under Jewish control. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.